Welcome to Mom and Doc Talk, a podcast for health-conscious parents where you get the perspective of a mom and a dad who's also a pediatrician and pediatric emergency physician. Instead of Googling your way through parenting and hoping for the best, get trusted guidance and be the empowered, savvy, and decisive parent you know you can be. Sleep easy when you follow advice tested by doctors and tried by moms and dads. Here are your mom and dad hosts, Dr. Christopher Haynes and Azure Sullivan. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Mom and Doc Talk. This is Dr. Chris. I am very excited about today's episode. Uh, we are taking questions that we've had people either write or direct message us on social media. Uh, we're going to go through as many as we possibly can. Um, we've received a lot. Um, we're going to pick some of the highlights and kind of go through the best that we can. Um, I'm here with Azure. Yes. Hi, guys. How is everybody? So how's everything going, Azure? Everything. It's a beautiful day today. It's the hot. It's shining. It's hot. It's really hot. I don't like the heat. So um, Is it officially summer yet? It's not, I think, until the end of June. Yeah, I think even across the country, I heard in the Southwest, it's like 110, 114. They're having warnings. I'm glad I'm not there. Yeah. So for all of you in the Southwest experiencing this, I'm sorry, but that's just too hot for me. Yeah, I would agree 100%. So let's start off. We have a lot to go through today. Yeah, it was uh, it was hard choosing the questions for today, but these are all wonderful questions. And I'm super excited and happy that everybody has wrote us something. So let's start off. And a lot of these questions came in for Azure. Some did come in for me as well. Um, but let's start with a question from Melissa from Johnson City, Tennessee. And her question was a really good one. How do I organize when I come home from having a baby? Or how am I prepared in my home um, before I come home with that baby, if it's your first baby? That is a really great question. It's a really broad question, Melissa. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of things to be organized for, right? Like we could spend hours organizing just one room in your house, right? Uh, but organizing for just having your baby really comes down to, and I'm going to say it, and I know you're going to like think, oh, okay, I don't want to hear it, but it's the preparation ahead of time. So I, sh I am shocked to hear yeah, that from so, a professional organizer. So this is the funny thing. You're pregnant for, you know, nine, 10 months, right? Everyone says nine months, but really it's, it's a little longer than that, right? Sure. <laughs> it feels like eternity. So you're pregnant for this X amount of time, which you're like, oh, I've got time. You're and thinking. Then, and then you go, oh, sh And then, oh my God, oh my gosh, like I'm delivering next week. Or, you know, maybe it's a, a, a surprise to most of you, but it, it comes and it goes so fast because you're thinking, oh, I've got time. Oh, I've got time. And then all of a sudden, next month is your due date. And you're like, I got literally nothing done because I kept saying to myself, I have time. Or maybe other people were telling you, oh, you've got time. No big deal. My, my suggestion is, and I don't know um, where you are, like if you're, if you're like how far along you are, if you're still pregnant or my suggestion to you is really sit down and make yourself that checklist of these are the you know top 10 things I need to absolutely get done. And this is part of the organizational aspect of it. Like, what do I not have? Like, do I have baby clothes? Do I have uh, the necessities of feeding, depending on what kind of feeding uh, method that you are using, whether it's breastfeeding or nursing or uh, 
or a bottle feeding, um, do you have the supplies? And the question is, after you have the supplies, how do you put them into place? Like, okay, I need everything kind of set up. I need them to be ready and functional. I need them to be cleaned, disinfected, washed, clothing, blankets, all those things, set up the crib, all those kinds of um, things that the baby needs. Um, you also want to think beyond baby items too when you're when you're talking organized because when you have that baby, we kind of discussed in other previous podcasts that you kind of forget about yourself like eating and sleeping. And so you want to set up a station for yourself or your partner that can make it super easy for you to still live your life comfortably with this new addition to your home and be happy and comfortable. So thinking about pre-making meals and putting them in your freezer, um, asking in advance to family members or friends to, hey, when I have this baby or you know, w- while I'm getting used to the new routine, can you help me with washing my car or cleaning my house or uh, taking Making the trash meals. out? It's something, yeah, I mentioned that. Any of those things, thinking beyond just your baby, but you, if I can add, you know, one of the things that I experienced was everyone wants to come at the same time. So even plan and organize, you know, if you have two sets of grandparents, that they're going to come at different times. Um, I remember tripping over everyone and everyone having nothing to do. So even plan that. I would say that those are the like top three. I think I think I gave like three big kind of chunks, generalized chunks of what I would consider to be uh, how to prep you to be organized for coming home with your new baby also a reminder that we do the parent coaching we that can also incorporate organizing and prepping you the whole room could be your family rooms could be your baby's room could be any of those things and kind of me setting you up with that and making it as perfect as you would like it to be yeah and we do combination coaching where it's both azure and myself and you get zoom calls with azure once a week you get zoom calls with me once a week uh, we do unlimited texting um, and we have lots of different options for different age children and parents that are in different stages, whether they're expecting or they have children already. Well said, Dr. Chris. Uh, next question, Robert from New York, New York. He says, sometimes my five-month-old feels hot. What is the best, best way to take their temperature and is it reliable to just touch or feel for a temperature? So it's a tricky question. And the literature says a few things. So parents are usually right when they touch their kids. They can tell whether they have a temperature or a fever. And as we've talked about a fever is anything higher than 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, If you use centigrade, it's 38 degrees centigrade. Um, So, yeah, can you touch? Can you usually tell when your child has a fever? And the literature and the published literature really says that. However, Moms and dads really can't tell high, how high the temperature is, especially when you have young kids. You don't want to rely on that because young kids can have febrile seizures or a seizure as a result of a fever. And that's not just from how high the fever is, how high it goes up. So you feel your child and they feel warm and five minutes later their temperature is 104 and they're having a seizure. Um, you probably could have intervened at that point. And there are lots of thermometers and we've seen, I, I, I can tell you I'm seeing 15, 20 kids a day with fevers of 103, 104. And these are all the viruses that are running around. And we've talked about these before. A lot of what I'll call infrared thermometers, and they're the ones you scan across the forehead. Um, People use um, binky um, thermometers. They use ear thermometers. All are, I would say, 
Binky thermometers I would recommend no one ever use, and these are pacifier thermometers. Um, I would recommend no one ever use an ear thermometer. These are off three degrees either direction. And even the infrareds, the ones that we use in the emergency department to scan foreheads, um, we go back and double check with rectal, rectal temperatures, especially on kids under age two. Um, that's probably your best bet. You're not gonna hurt them, use a little bit of lubrication, use a digital thermometer. And other ways when kids get older, a little over two, you can certainly put it under their tongue, you can put it under their arm. Um, and if you're really uncomfortable putting it in their rear end, certainly you can put it under their arm um, at five months. But the best way really is to use a rectal thermometer and get a rectal temperature. That'll be the most reliable. If I can add, uh, I anytime that you know my child has felt warm, I'm like, oh, okay, this feels a little off to me. I don't know this temperature. I just know it feels a little off. I go and I take her and temperature. The, and that's exactly what the literature I, said. And then I write it down. This is the important, this is really key. Write it down. The time, the date, write it down. Because you could forget. Like, I don't know if that was yesterday or, you know, going into midnight past a certain time. You don't remember what day it was uh, or whether it was noon or midnight. So just making sure you're writing it down and keeping note and track of how quickly the temperature is rising, like Dr. Chris says, because that's really important. So if the temperature is stable, you know, two hours later, you know, at least you know, rather than saying like, oh, maybe it'll go down. I don't know what temperature it is. It's really good to always just know anyway. And it's important from our perspective as pediatric ER doctors, I'm going to ask you, if you come in to a pediatrician, if you come oh, into a right. pediatrician, I'm going to ask, when did it start? And I get, well, it started Tuesday, maybe. And, you know, I hear it all the time. It's really important to know when it started. We use not days of fever. We look at time. So for instance, females with fever, young females with fever for three days, I start to worry about urinary tract infections. But that 72 hours is really a big cutoff for us or 48 hours, whatever the number, we need to know those temperatures and we need to know when it happens. And also timing, I mentioned like writing down the time, that's also for like medication dosages. Like if you decide to use um, medication, make sure you're writing down when you're, how much you're giving and when you're giving it. Cause Dr. Chris is going to ask you the same question too. Have you been getting, giving medication? How much, when? I hear it all over the place. And one of the things if I recommend to anyone, this is the bane of our existence is we see on an average, I see at least five, six, six, six kids a day that are underdosed with either Tylenol or ibuprofen. Um, I see parents that will give it just, I just gave a little bit well, I really don't understand why. You're either going to give it or you're not. Um, and certainly you want to clarify with your pediatrician, and we've talked about this before, find out your child's dose. And I see kids all the time that are 15 kilos being dosed or 30 pounds being dosed for a five kilo child. So they, they learn their ibuprofen dose when they're five months old and they're giving it to a 15 month old. Keep in mind your kids grow and sometimes pediatricians will fail to tell you the exact dose. And as we've talked about, you can certainly use the back of the bottle. The back of the bottle was very conservative and it tends to give you a little bit lower doses and you should check with your pediatrician the exact dose because as Azure talked about, it will control the temperature a little bit better. The next question, Dr. Chris, I want to uh, give you is Noel, is it Noelle? Noel from Las Vegas, Nevada. What are you seeing with COVID and kids? Um, I would put, you know, we've seen a little more COVID and we've seen a little bit of an uptick in the last probably month to two months. 
Um, and it's, it's becoming a little confusing for parents. I think we're seeing viruses right now. We're seeing influenza A. We've not seen a lot of influenza B. We're seeing para-influenza, which is croup. And we see it every spring and fall. And we're seeing right now, we saw para-influenza 3 and 4. Uh, we're also seeing rhinovirus and enterovirus. And this has been kind of consistent over time. And then we're seeing human metanumovirus. And COVID's sprinkled here and there. Um, we're seeing it in kids that are vaccinated and kids that are not vaccinated. So older kids that are vaccinated already are getting it. Um, overall, and, and I would tell you in general, the majority of kids have not really gotten sick with COVID-19. Um, there are a subset of kids that have gotten really sick with something called MISC. Um, MISC stands for multi-inflammatory syndrome in children. Um, and this is a condition where different parts of the body can become inflamed as a result of COVID-19 and cause serious, serious outcomes and need an intensive care unit. Um, these kids look really, really sick and they get sick relatively quickly. Um, but as I said, it's very rare. Um, certainly if your child looks sick, get to an emergency department or talk to your pediatrician immediately. I would say in general, the kids I've seen in the emergency department, the majority of them have been overall well. We would describe them as non-toxic appearing. They're smiling. Do they look ill? Yeah, they have a fever. They have congestion. And I would say the majority of them knew they had it before they got there. Um, they had an exposure and they're being sent in by school to get checked or they're being um, sent in by a pediatrician because the pediatrician's office wasn't available. I think the thing that's really important, and this is what I'm hoping doesn't happen, is that it seems like people are getting comfortable with COVID-19. And that's a good thing um, as we come out of the pandemic and, you know, as we heard, you know, believe it was June 12th, where now you don't need to get tested coming back into the United States for COVID-19. And that's that's a step, a very positive step in the right direction. But I think it's really important that we continue, if you have COVID-19, continue to make sure you follow quarantine guidelines and all the rules around it. Uh, Dr. Chris, you were saying that you weren't seeing a lot that were getting sick. Now, did you mean like having symptoms or they, they were infected or they weren't infected and no symptoms? We are still seeing kids that are coming in for other things that are testing positive. So for instance, I had a child the other day that had a fracture and we were testing for a transfer to another hospital and came back positive for COVID-19. But did not have symptoms. Didn't have COVID. symptoms at all. And this is what we've seen throughout. Okay. We are also seeing kids that are now coming in with symptoms, fever, sore throat, cough, congestion. They're very, very similar to flu. And they can be very confusing to parents because they almost look like influenza A symptoms. Uh, I would also say that I've seen a, a little less vaccination for influenza A, and I think that's because of COVID. And you know, people weren't getting to their doctors, and people I don't think have received the same healthcare. So we are seeing kids with influenza A as well. So let's transition to the next couple questions, and these were questions for Azure. And the next question is from Ashley in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh, you said you had breastfed. I work and really want to continue to breastfeed. I'm struggling a little bit. Can you give me some advice? And I'm going to add a little bit on to that, Azure. Um, hopefully you can tell the audience a little bit about our listeners about what your experience was breastfeeding. And, you know, we hear lots of good and bad. And if you could really just you know, give Ashley some advice of what things worked and what didn't work. Well, Ashley, again, thanks for your question. This is a tough question 
uh, not too, not tough as in to answer, but it's a tough question because it really depends on your situation. Um, a, you know, breastfeeding is hard in itself. Just getting your child to latch onto you, uh, that can be an issue. But associated with, I mean, so going back to my experience, I'll say my experience was really awesome uh, because I was open and uh, upfront about like either what I wasn't comfortable with or what I didn't know or what I had questions about. And there have, you know, there's lots of studies that people who ask, they get, they're more successful with breastfeeding. The people who reach out for help, way more successful than if you did not. So I just want to mention that in, in advance. Uh, so I asked questions, you know, I was very upfront. I had done research prior to, I had talked to lots of lactation consultants. I was very open and, um, you know, being relaxed is a really big thing. And I didn't believe it in the beginning. I was like, no, I'm not going to believe that. I'm just like, this is just going to work how I want it to work. And really, honestly, it doesn't. You have to be relaxed. And why? <laughs> it's muscles. We have muscles in our breast tissue that are really letting it down, releasing the milk. The milk is staying there. And once it's stimulated, you start releasing it down. And that stimulation... Um, can come from a couple different things. But my breastfeeding experience got way better the longer I stayed with it. And that goes for a lot of things. You know, you get better at a lot of things when you stick with it for a long time. Uh, and you do more practice. So I think practice, again, makes perfect, so to speak. So my experience was I made sure I had a space that was comfortable for me. And I know that you're kind of talking in regards to work, and I'll get that get there in a second. But I'm going to kind of go over like the things that were really important to me was, you know, having a space that really I could relax and be comfortable, whether that is not being around people or a couch or some like physically comfortable place, whether it was my outfit. Um, also things to do while I was breastfeeding, like sometimes sitting there and looking at my child is enough, but other times I want to kind of multitask and try to get other things done. So like I, t I think about that. Um, were you able to do work? And yeah, I'm going to get there. He's well, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I, <laughs> He's I'm very impatient. I know. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, and I, it's also like transitioning to, okay, so this also depends on like where you're doing it. Is it in an airplane? Is it in a bathroom? And oh, do I have to lug my electronic pump or I don't have my baby with me at work? How do I do it there? Uh, so I'd say also before you do uh, a lot of those other things is really kind of train yourself to be... Uh, a lot of people don't want to pump. They want to just nurse all that. That's it. But then you get full if you're away from your child for six, eight hours and you're so engorged and it hurts, you have to let down some milk at some point. And I would suggest, highly suggest pumping in between when you're not around your baby. And this also helps keep up with your milk flow. So it doesn't slow it down. Because uh, the more you nurse, the more milk you make. It's it's supply and demand. Absolutely. And I hear this in the ER all the time. I don't make enough milk. Well, what I see most commonly is this combo feeding going on where it's formula back to breastfeeding, back to formula. And exactly what you said. This is, it's combo like, is it's great. Like, it's like economics, right? And that's okay. Yeah. But it is supply and demand. The more demand there is, the more that you're going to make. And I would comment as a dad, and I, you've heard me say this before, I felt like I didn't have a job for the first six to eight weeks mm -hmm. with my children. Certainly pumping and freezing 
are pumping and storing and giving dad a job is really, really important as well. Really, really beneficial to him having a connection or the other partner in general having a connection with the child. Very important. So going back to the work thing, um, I really, really recommend practicing um, trying to, you know, let yourself relax doing a pump, using a pump, finding a pump that works for you, whether that's electronic and using batteries or a hand pump. But I'm going to say, honestly, if you're at work, I... I went back to work, you know, three weeks after I had my child, and that's pretty quick. I just love work. I love my job. I love working, and I like staying active, and that's what I did. So I wasn't around my child very much in the beginning, and sometimes I could bring my child with me to work because I was in that situation where I could. But if you're not, you're, you know, you're working eight, nine hours a day, uh, and you need to pump, I suggest a hand pump. Um, and then have a suction pump on the other side to catch the other letdown. That is amazing. And I want to mention that you don't have to do this in a bathroom. And by there are a lot of lactation laws that are out there. And depending on your state, some of them could be a little different. But there is a Fair Labor Standards Act, FLSA, and it's about break time for nursing mothers. And it's basically saying that they are, requ- they are, they are required to let you use time in your day, your work day, and, you know, people say, well, how much time? Well, it's a reasonable break. If it takes you 15 minutes, 30 minutes, okay, that's a reasonable time. But it, it's supposed to tell you they have to give you a location to pump or nurse, not nurse, but like or um, hand pump, electronic pump, whichever the case. Um, they have to give you a location that's comfortable and that does not uh, allow for intrusion. So like in a bathroom, no one can uh, disturb you. So it has to be a comfortable space that's separate from a bathroom. And the, you should look into these if you're a working a working mom and uh, at a location that you need to pump and have your own lo- little, little space to do it. But I would go back and say that practicing using a hand pump and a suction pump, those were my favorite two things. And I use those on airplanes and car rides uh, because uh, an electronic pump I use just at home in between and I pumped so much because I wanted that supply and demand. How long did you breastfeed? I breastfed and that's a good question. I was going to mention that. So I breastfed for, it felt like eternity, but um, I believe it was 14 or 15 months, 14 or 15 months. And it is hard to stop because your body wants to keep going, but you're like, I hate this so much sometimes. Like, I don't want to do this. Takes a lot of time out of my day, but your body's like, no, keep doing it. Keep taking milk out of me and I'm just like oh my gosh I don't know how to do this <laughs> but anyway I I pumped for that or I, I breastfed and pumped for that amount of time but I was doing it so frequently so that I had a lot of milk in the freezer I had it for vacation like times for like airplanes I had it for car rides I had it ready ready for my um, then husband to help me I you know for him to participate I was it was a lot of um milk supply but I used to joke that I pumped so much or nursed so much that on the schedule that I would you know I would get like a uh, like maybe a birthday party invitation I'd be like oh RSVP I can't come because I'll be pumping and that was the ongoing joke because I did it all the time the American Academy of Pediatrics suggests and highly recommends a minimum of six months of breastfeeding so if you can do it that's wonderful if you just can't don't beat yourself up for it but they just it is a choice it is a choice but it's really really great for uh, a baby and a newborn but going back to your original question you also need to be open with your work 
your supervisor, boss, et cetera, and say, this is what I want. These are my needs and this is how I want to proceed. And they have to work with you. That's great advice. And I think it's good transition to the next question. And this was a question for you, Azure, as well, but I'm going to chime in as well as a pediatrician, okay. a pediatric ER physician. And this was Beth from Chicago, Illinois. My toddler doesn't seem to want to follow directions. Can you give me any advice? Um, I kind of giggle when I hear this because it's, you know, you hear the terrible twos and the terrible threes. Um, so what do you think? What advice do you have? This is a question I get a lot, actually. So great, great question, Beth. So I want to start with this question about bringing it down to positive parenting or positive reinforcement. And by that, I mean not acting negatively towards their negative behavior. And it kind of almost makes it a little worse when you have a negative on negative, right? So a first thing is parents maintaining themselves, staying, uh, having a lot of patience, holding themselves, and keeping a positive attitude towards however you're reacting to whichever behavior, right? So not coming home from a long day and having an absolute meltdown when your kid's not following directions. Absolutely. We have to, as as hard as it is, we honestly have to understand, take a step back and say, you know, my child doesn't know how to express their feelings or maybe have the language to tell me how they're feeling or any of those things. So I need to understand how they are feeling. I need to put myself in their position Regardless if I had the worst day of my life, my child comes first and their emotions and we really need to take a step back and say like, okay. And even if you need to take a moment to yourself to kind of collect yourself of what you want to say instead of react, think about what you want to say and how they might interpret it. And I know this sounds like it might take forever, but it's it can happen in a matter of a few seconds just to remind yourself, okay, I need to take a moment, think about how I want to react to this and then dive into it. I would add one of the things that's really important, and my children are older, and this goes for adolescents as well because they revert to toddlerhood, um, is consistency. I love routines. And understanding that your behavior will become their behavior. So if you scream and yell and you lose control, they're going to scream and control, you know, lose control as well. So they are an open book. You are, they are forming by your reactions. They don't know. They're learning. They're developing. They're learning to speak. Um, they will clearly mimic exactly what you're doing. There's a, there's a couple techniques. Like, so some people do like using timeouts and timeouts, you know, depending on their age, you know, a, a two-year-old is not going to understand a 10-minute timeout. So recommendations are typically, it's, it's a minute per age. Uh, per, per year, per, per year, year, per year of age, I would say, and generally, I don't, I don't see putting kids into timeout less than a year of age, probably about a year, close to a year, somewhere in that ballpark. If you need to do it under a year, maybe thirty seconds. Timeouts uh, can just be like, hey, let's take a break, let's separate ourselves from whatever the activity was, whether it's fighting with their sibling or. Um, talking back to you or say, you know, I know you need to express your feelings and you're angry about something or, you know, Joey hit you. Let's take a break. 
and go into a, like a safe zone, could be their room, could be 10 feet away, away from everyone else, could be just let's take a break, an emotional break, and tell them this, even if they're really little. We had a podcast about, you know, even if they can't express these words or verbalize it, saying it to them helps them kind of relate it to the, the situation and they will understand sooner. I would add that one of the other keys with timeout is exactly what Azure said, but it's consistency. So using the same chair, because then they know. And when they're done with their timeout, taking the time to explain to them what happened and how they can positively avoid it in the future is really key. I remember I walked into a restaurant a few months ago and a little girl in front of me just looked at me and goes, no. I didn't say anything to her. I didn't look at her. I didn't even know she was there. She was so little. She was definitely like, you know, over a year, but she was so little. And she, all she did was say no, no, no. And that word I call is an illegal word because I don't want to say just no. We want to, as parents, try to say yes as much as possible and make them feel like, again, the positive reinforcement, positive behavior, not just saying no. You say, you know, alternatives to saying no but like I would not like you to play with this but you can play with this instead instead of saying no don't touch that um and then it causes a meltdown maybe like oh all they hear is they can't do something and it's negative and it's like a mental block to them um and then the other way about that is again going back to the routines is if they know they do something negative you react to it quickly, they know that there's a follow-up to it. But if you let it go, whether that's, you know, sometimes people do this more in public when they're around other people, they might be embarrassed to say however they handle the situation regardless, is just letting your child know that it's it's not gone unseen and that they you need to address it. So addressing things quickly instead of letting them go. I've seen a lot of parents you know in in gatherings where a kid does something and their parents like you know you shouldn't do that you shouldn't do that like 30 times and i'm like that should have been addressed the first time my my kids would have no longer been at the gathering that too you you remove them from a situation you talk to them about their feelings you know i know that you're upset you're probably feeling this you know i'd like to know more if they can talk to you um and just really talking it through do you need a break do you need a moment to yourself, um, saying these things, and also controlling yourself. Again, controlling yourself. They will probably fight back at some point and say, no, I don't want to do this. Okay, well, if you don't want to do that, we can take a longer time to ourselves. We'll, you know, until you're ready to recover from this, you know, like ready to talk about this or, um, and just controlling your own temper, your own temper as well. And again, control, positive, maintaining, and Uh, routine and consistency you know that structure that I love so much you know uh, they know every you know eight o'clock at night we put pjs on and we brush our teeth if you don't want to participate in that then you know there um there are other ways to handle it but if they are used to something they're more likely to follow along with it I would add a couple things and one avoid threats yeah, if I don't you, like threats. If you're going to give a threat, not follow through. And really, honestly, you know, an example would be stop or else. Um, a better way to do it, and as you talked about this, is tell them no, but next time, or no, we can't do this right now. However, five minutes from now, we can do an alternative. 
um, as opposed to threatening. And, you know, I want to add a little bit, and we're going to have a guest on our podcast in the future um, that is an expert in discipline and punishment and what we call non-accidental trauma or child abuse. And, you know, it's a fine line. And what is discipline and what is punishment? And discipline is a way of teaching and a way of enhancing a good parent-child relationship. And when you discipline, you really should provide your child with praise. And really, you get instructions with that in a firm tone. And the intent of discipline is to really improve your, his or her child's behavior. Punishment is, the, is different, right? We've all been punished. It's negative. And Azure's talked about the negatives. And punishment is when you're dispensing an unpleasant consequence to a child. And punishment is part of discipline, but it's only a small part. And one of the things that's really important developmentally is kids under three, sometimes later, depending on who the kid is, and we've talked about every kid is different, they don't understand the concept of punishment. So you're kind of really wasting, you know, you go, you know, tap a kid's rear end at a year and a half, you know, they may not even understand why you're doing it. Um, and what, one thing I love the most is, you know, you know, a child doing something and a parent goes, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Stop that. They don't know. They yeah. don't know why they did something. And, and you probably know more than they do, actually. So that's the question is a very, it's almost like impulsive. Like you want to always ask this question but it's definitely not the right way to go about it. And, and one of the alternatives to discipline is really just setting limits. And that's a much better approach than punishment. And we've talked about it with this question. Azure's done a great job of explaining you know, the approach. Um, but most children will respond in a really clear, calm, decisive manner when you limit set. Um, they do very, very well. And you know, I think that there are lots of behaviors that can be out of bounds. Um, I'm sure I've had experience with, I'm sure Azure has experience. There are kids that punch, there are kids that bite. Um, you know, part of it is developmental, part of it, some of it is out of bounds. But if you're having an issue like that, talk to your pediatrician, um, have a conversation, talk to their teachers. Um, there may be something else going on. Absolutely. All right. Our next question is from Bridget. And across the pond in London, England. Awesome. <laughs> and it's pretty cool that we had yeah. a listener that's, um, we look at our stats, there are lots of people all over the world that are listening. Um, and her question is, you said you were a professional organizer and a mom. Can you give me any tricks or tips to organize my child's room? Um, the way her room is right now just doesn't work. And what things can I do? Just looking for some guidance. Again, really great question. Also a really broad question. And this there, is way out of my league. There, again, I don't know what your room looks like or your child's room looks like, Bridget. Uh, I would honestly have to look at it because a lot of people think, and I'm just going to say this, um, they think, oh my God, I live in a small apartment. I live in a small house. I can't, my, I can't be organized. Absolutely. Yes, you can. You can organize anything and make it, make it functional to your needs. Absolutely. Yes, you can. does not matter the size. What do you mean organized and functional? Uh, organized and functional. So if something, and I say organized and functional, meaning if it suits your needs, then it is functional and it's organized. It does not have to be picture perfect to, and be in a magazine to be organized and functional. If it is something that you, you know, it, it looks pleasant to you and it is working for you, 
then that's great. Then I am happy for you. And that's what I do with my clients is I get them to where they are happy and they are able to keep up, function, and they learn better habits, right? That's what I mean by that. Do you, can you possibly make it like magazine appearance? Absolutely, I can do that for you, but it may not work for you. So that's why I say that, um, organized and, and, and functional. So some some tips and tricks. So general t- tips for you that I could say to organize your child's room is first thing is go through the things that you don't need. And I say that and it, it, you might be like, well, I need everything. Well, I can already tell you that you don't. Um, and it's kind of harsh, but is kid, we, we overbuy for our kids. Just I, I know my kid has things that she doesn't need in there, but I like it, right? And I'll let her have it. But there are things that cause the clutter, you know, maybe old clothes they don't fit into, toys they don't play with anymore. Um, there are lots of things you can donate, move on to the next family that can really clear out some space for you to work. Um, I, I've heard you make a comment before, and it reminds me of business school, and it's a, in an accounting term. It's one in and one out. I love that rule. I and love that rule. Lots tell, of people say it doesn't work it. for them. But um, – that one in one out rule is we go to the grocery store and my daughter wants a stuffed animal. She says, mommy, can I have this? I say, okay, just so you're aware, when we buy this stuffed animal, we have to move on the next, uh, an item at home to some other family or a kid down the, you know, the street. Um, we have to remove that and, uh, so you remove it and you donate and you, I'll donate, you, you I'll give to another child. I pass another it, child. That's pass amazing. it on. Absolutely. But she knows that, oh, do I really want this that much though? Because this is also teaching our kids that you can't have everything you want. You can't have everything because they don't really value what they have then as much. If they can have everything, then why would they value anything that they have at all? So I'm teaching her that she needs to appreciate the things that she has and she can't just choose what she feels like at any time she wants. So she knows like, oh, I actually really love my my raccoon. I don't want to get rid of it. So... Um, you know, I, 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 won't, I don't need other animals then or other stuffed animals or toys. I do like what I have and I'm okay with that. Or maybe she doesn't understand the concept, but we get home and we talk through it. So since we got a new toy today, let's get rid of something that's old that we don't like really play with anymore. We can give to another kid to use or, you know, talk something along those lines. Um, and I did this from day one, even if she couldn't communicate with me. But anyway, so good question. Again, doesn't have to be beautiful, but... Um, Make sure that you you start going through your things and getting rid of things that you're seeing that your kid's not wearing, using, um, and then you start clearing out some space for yourself. So that's number one. Um, buy thing if you're really focused on like it looking cute. Um, buy things in threes, fives, sevens. Don't buy one, two of something because it ends up looking a little funky depending on where you where you place these things. It works really well when you have them in sets of threes and fives, no matter where you place them. If you really want it to look kind of that, give it that dazzle, that little sparkle to the room. Things that really help a room if it's small is color, color choices. Maybe paint the room a really light color and stick with the color, a color palette that all kind of matches and it really makes things come to life. It really brings things together, makes it look organized, even if it isn't labeling things really helps whether it's the baskets that you chose to put diapers in or clothes that don't fit and you label that so you know exactly where things are I love 
using vertical space, meaning, and also, so I'll use it in different ways. So a vertical space, meaning, you know, you have that closet shelf that has like six feet of space on top of it. Think about getting something that can utilize the vertical space, whether it's something hanging on the wall or you could add another shelf to it. You could add bins to the top that things that you don't get to every day, but they're labeled. And also utilizing space under their crib, places that we don't usually think about, but it, it's very efficient. So I hope that kind of answers your question. A little broad, again, I don't, I don't know what it looks like, but those basic things can get you started in any sense. So Dr. Chris, I had a lot of questions for me. I want to direct this next one to you. A guy, John from Akron, Ohio, I heard that the COVID vaccine for kids will soon be available for kids under five. What are your thoughts? Would you get the vaccine for your child? So let's talk a little bit about where things are with the COVID vaccine. And certainly it's been very effective for children above age five, and that's the Pfizer vaccine is currently approved for five and above. And it's an interesting question because this week, the Food and Drug Administration, the Centers for Disease Control Advisors, um, are meeting to discuss COVID vaccine under ages five. And there's been lots of months of delay, um, but Honestly, what I'm hearing is that U.S. children could be, and this is under five, could be just week, weeks, couple weeks away from being eligible to receive a COVID-19 vaccine. And as I said, the FDA and the CDC are meeting this week. And all the data that I've seen and that's been published has shown that it's safe. And currently, there are uh, a couple different ways to get your child potentially vaccinated when it's approved. And right now, the two companies that are involved are Moderna and Pfizer. Moderna is looking for authorization of a two-dose series of its vaccine for children aged six months through five years of age. And Pfizer, the other company, is asking for authorization of a three-dose series of its vaccine for children aged six months through four years. And the difference is that Pfizer already has approval for five and up. Um, so back to your question, uh, would I get this for my child? Absolutely. Um, it will likely prevent severe disease in the majority of cases. And we have vaccines for things that can cause meningitis, that can cause severe, severe illness. And vaccines have gone back a long time now. And as a pediatrician, pediatric ER doctor, these are the things we can do to keep your child safe. And certainly with COVID-19, we can do the same. Yeah, I'm sure that there are a lot of parents out there that are super nervous about this, uh, considering that they're, you know, kids are really little, but I, I'm definitely on board with that. I, I agree with Dr. Chris. I think this is a, a great step in the right direction. Yeah, I would add also that you know our government has laid out a plan to really begin to administer vaccines to young children as once the Food Drug Administration Center for Disease Control Act. Um, and what I've read, and I don't have exact details of this, that there are about 10 million doses initially available for this age group. Um, so really keep in touch with your pediatricians, um, community health centers, and other sites for the ability to get your child vaccinated if this is what you choose. So Azure, the next question that we received was from Kathleen in San Francisco, California. And this is, I love traveling and I always love traveling with my children, but she asked, um, I travel with my young kids a lot 
and I really have had a difficult time packing um, and difficult time traveling. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the things that you've done to prepare how it's been successful and really how to avoid some of the hiccups while traveling? I listened to some of your past podcasts and you had great advice. Ooh, traveling and packing and organizing all these lovely questions. <laughs> if you could only see the look on her face. First of all, awesome. I'm so happy that you travel with your, your young kids. Awesome. So you're not scared at all. <laughs> I want to say I love, first of all, I love lists. I love checklists. Routines, checklists, I love them. I am shocked. Checklist, checklist, checklist. Please create a checklist. I have a checklist I talked about in our past traveling podcast. I have a checklist. You can, you can, I can send to you. You can download it. It's in our, it's in our classes. It's in our courses. One that's all just for traveling with your kids. Uh, this checklist is fantastic. And I recommend creating this checklist, not a mental checklist because if you have one, two, three, five kids and you're traveling, you are not thinking, you are not thinking about what you're forgetting because you, you'd obviously wouldn't have forgotten it then. So write it down, get whatever you're thinking, whether it's what are the plants, feed the dog, sunblock, you know, leave, you, turn the air conditioning down, any of those things that you normally do on trips, write it down and section it into areas that make sense, you know, toiletries chores, things like that. Get money. Write it down. So add the checklist. Add one for every person in your family. Mom, dad, two kids, right? Everyone gets their own. Perfect, perfect, perfect. That's number one. Number two, packing cubes. Can I comment real fast yeah, before sure. we go to packing cubes? Because you What's shared that? me, I, after we had the, the podcast on traveling, you shared it with me. And one of the things that I found fascinating. Shared I, the checklist with you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did. And it's interesting because you approach it also by season and you approach it by areas that you like to travel. Hobbies so, And too. You, you keep it broad mm-hmm. and it's one checklist, but you eliminate an area. So if you're going skiing, you just cross out the beach area mm-hmm. and then you have it there. Yeah, I do. If you're going to the beach, you cross out the skiing area or whatever activity you're doing. Yes. And you also think about before and after. You think about things that need to, you know, so there's a list of pre and post. It's almost like taking an airplane off. Um, but I found it very fascinating and it works really well. Yeah. I, I, my friends like beg me for this list. They're like, can you just print me out another one? Can I just have that? <laughs> uh, packing cubes. Going back to packing cubes. Do they make different colors, different sizes? Everybody gets a different color. Number one. Or because this is, goes back to when your kid's really little, Keep your kids' stuff with you as much as you can, like instead of adding that extra bag. If you want to add the extra bag, no big deal. It's just one extra thing for you to think about, and it's really great to not – And yeah, and to carry, especially when someone's having a meltdown or crying or Or sick. Or pay for. Or pay for any of those things. It is just really easy to just consolidate as much as possible, and packing cubes make a really – make this really – easy for you especially if you're like oh johnny's stuff's mixed with my stuff but oh he gets blue i get pink packing cubes so you know exactly whose things belong to whom you know so that is one of my biggest things i love and this doesn't have to be just for airplane travel or car travel i love having again part of the checklist i like having electronics in their own like little bags keep like 
crayons, pencils, activities, and sometimes little bags for them in their, like, whether it's a carry-on or their, like, little book bag to keep in the car because they can just easily pull it out. Wrap wires with Velcro straps so they're not tangled and everywhere and someone's complaining here in the back seat. He stole this. That's mine. Or everyone has their own labeled items. You know, I like to label cords, wires. This goes to my tablet. This goes to my phone. I love, and then all of those electronics having a travel charging block that can charge multiple multiple electronic devices and it, it holds hours and hours worth of a charge so those are fantastic also we talked about on our travel podcast that travel uh, first aid kit travel first aid kit and having even if it's just like the top five things in there because the last thing you want to do is go to another country or go to a different state and you know you, you in the car ride and someone's vomiting or someone has diarrhea or someone is sick in some way and you are prepared for that dr chris i'm sure you you've experienced things similar to that you know even in your case wishing that you had done that it's murphy's law when you need it you're not going to have it exactly so always bring it with you i always keep it in with my travel stuff, I'm like, oh, here's my here's my little first aid kit that I bring everywhere so no one's digging through it, no one's touching it, so that when you go and put it where it's supposed to go in your bags when you're traveling that you know that someone didn't go in and remove all the Band-Aids because they, you know, you ran out in your household Band-Aids, you know, your regular stash. So make sure that no one's going in and removing and adding things that you don't, you're not aware of. That makes it a lot easier. Okay, so Dr. Chris, we only have time for one more question. This is a really great question, and you've been getting this question a lot um, that I'm aware of. Um, Harper from Columbus, Ohio. I have been listening to the news about the formula shortage. I have a three-month-old baby, and I cannot breastfeed. What do I do if I cannot get any formula? Is there anything else I can use? Really great question, Harper. It's a great question. It's a really complex. And it's scary. It's a complex question. And... Clearly, there's an infant formula shortage in the U.S., and it's potentially getting worse. Um, I've heard good news that one of the factories may be opening in the next month. Um, but let's start off with why there's an infant formula shortage. You know, in February, there was a contamination issue at the Abbott factory in Michigan. Um, that factory produces most of the Similac products. So Similac, Alimentum, Elicare, and other brands uh, for the U.S. And they closed the factory following concerns with contaminated formula. Um, two bacteria, one of them called Chronobacter, another one called Salmonella, um, and it was linked to two infant deaths. So really scary. And as I believe we're talking right now, I do not believe that factory has reopened. And the FDA or Food and Drug Administration is working with Abbott to get it open as quickly as possible. I know our government is also looking at other countries to ship in formulas as well. Um, what's also important is nearly 20% of babies get formula in the first few days of life, right? And by the time they're three months of age, um, less than 50% of babies are exclusively breastfeeding. So there's really, really a need. And as we think about it, this has really become a crisis. And let's answer the second part of your question. Let's talk about what I've seen. Um, I've seen parents that are diluting formula to try to stretch it out. 
And I would say that this is a big no. Um, reach out to your pediatrician if you're having a problem and you can't find formula. And it can cause a lot of issues. And first and foremost, if you dilute it with water, your child's not going to grow. They're going to have really a risk of poor growth. And if you're giving them extra water, it can lead to low sodium. And we've talked about this before. This is my worst nightmare in the summer when kids get too much water. Um, that can cause problems. It can cause brain problems. It can also cause seizures and it can really, really be a problem. Um, the other thing I've seen a lot of, and unfortunately I've seen six, seven month olds being given cow's milk and it is not recommended until over 12 months of age. And really the chief concern that you have to be aware of is, is iron. Um, additionally, 40% of infants cow milk is, is exclusively tied to gastrointestinal bleeding or bleeding in the baby's belly. Um, and they really will not get the things that they need. Um, you can get excess or you can get uh, reduced iron absorption. Um, you can get excess calcium. You can have lots of issues with the kidneys. So you really don't want to give milk until 12 months of age. There's good data to back that up. And I've had people come in that have switched to goat's milk. Um, looking for an alternative. And the chief problem with goat's milk is it doesn't have enough vitamin D, it doesn't have B12, it really doesn't have iron, and it doesn't have folate. And as a result, what can happen is you get anemia, um, very much like cow's milk, and it can be a problem. And I've had people ask me, can I give soy milk? Can I give almond milk? The answer is no. Um, they will not really help. They're not, they don't have the fortification that's in the formula that babies get. And I've also had one parent come in and say they were making a home formula. They had a home recipe. Um, this used to be done a long time ago in the forties and fifties and infant formulas are really super complex and they are concentrations of protein, fat, vitamins, minerals, and most of which you can't buy. And unfortunately, individual recipes, um, which some have gained a foothold on social media, um, can really be a problem and really cause issues. Um, so what do you do? Let's go back to the first question, right? What if a parent can't find a formula? Well, let's start off with, this is an Abbott problem. This is the formulas produced by Abbott. There are no store brand formulas involved in the current Abbott recall. So you potentially can get other types of formula. It just not, might not be Similac. And yeah, are, is there hoarding going on where people are buying, you know, 30 containers of Similac at the same time? Absolutely. Some stores are now, just like when COVID started, limiting the number of containers of Similac you might be able to get. Um, but I think it's a couple different things. One, if you can breastfeed, certainly breastfeed, and then you don't have to worry about it. Um, this will have a lot of benefits to your child. And, you know, certainly talk to your pediatrician. There are different formulas and different transitions that you can do. Um, but really, it's finding an alternative. There are lists that your pediatricians have that you can find a similar formula to the Similac that your, your baby was getting. I hear parents, well, they, they were good on Similac. What happens if I give them a different alternative? Will they cry? Will they have gas? Will they not sleep at night? Uh, right now we're stuck in doing a transition. And I, I kind of want to add something to that. I'm going to maybe throw you for a loop here. There are mother's milk banks. Uh, I've heard people in search of these where other breastfeeding moms will donate their milk and it goes to a location that is processed and 
you can purchase it. What are your thoughts about that? It's certainly an alternative. And I know you and I have talked about this before. And a lot of the milk banks are used for young babies, NICU babies, children that don't have mothers. And what I went back and kind of looked this up a little bit. It's not something we deal with on a daily basis. And, you know, I think that one of the things that's really important as a pediatrician and a pediatric ER doctor is admit when you don't know. And there are things we don't know. We're human, right? So I went back and looked it up. And the first thing I found was an article in Fox Business, and this was published on June 9th, was breast milk banks struggle to meet demand as baby formula shortage sparks an increase in orders. So clearly it's being used as an alternative. Yeah, people are buying it. And there's it's certainly um, safe and something that you can do. Um, and milk banks are shipping um, throughout the country as well. Um, so it's an alternative, um, but certainly don't go back to hoarding, you know, and, you know, look at all your alternatives, talk to your pediatrician and find what's safe for you and what's best for your baby. Well said. Absolutely. Yeah. Just trust, trust what their expertise has for you and, you know, talk to them about it. Talk to them about what you're thinking about doing. Absolutely. I think that is all the questions we have time to answer today. Uh, we're going to do this again in the future. It's something that we very much enjoy doing, and I would ask you to please keep sending us questions. Um, it's one of the reasons we started this in the first place. Um, I would also let you know that please follow our podcast. It's on your favorite podcast channel. Um, we've had much increasing viewership and listenership, I should say, not viewership. We're not there yet. And I would also say, you know, to go and look at our website at www.blimmeldwellness.com and check out Kids Health Secrets, both online classes for parents as well as parent coaching. If you're interested in parent coaching with both Azure and I, um, either email us at info at follow us on social media, you can direct message us on social media. And we are excited that you keep listening and we look forward to you joining us next week. Have a great day, guys. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for joining our mom and doc talk. Did any questions come up while you were listening? Share your questions with Dr. Christopher and Azure by visiting www.blueemeraldwellness.com. You can also connect with them on Instagram at WeAreKidsHealthSecrets. Don't forget to rate the show on iTunes or Spotify so we can continue answering your most pressing kids' health and parenting questions. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode of Mom and Doc Talk. The content of this podcast, the opinions and information provided by the co-host and guests are for educational purposes only and should not replace the care provided by your child's physician. If you or your child is ill or having an emergency, please call 911 or seek care immediately.